I would like for us to bow for a word of prayer as we begin our look into God's word today. Our Father, we have, in a sense, been on the mountain because you've given us a glimpse through our praise time of your glory. And we're so grateful for that. And I, I can understand why the disciples would want to bask in that glory for a while. I certainly want to do that as well. And we also want to continue in worship looking at your word because we know that just as the disciples went from that space down the mountain into a teachable moment, you have continued to teach us and have a teachable moment for us today. And so we want to open our minds and our hearts to what you have to share with us so that we can take the next steps in our own life as we become true disciples of you in every area of our lives. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 9 is where we are. Uncontaminated faith is the title for what's going on today in our look. Uh, I have to tell you a true story to kind of set the tone for what's happening here. My mom got a little worried one time because my dad was late and he was always very timely. He was not coming home as early as she thought he might. He had gone to the church where he was serving as a volunteer, very much in the capacity of sort of a volunteer associate pastor, similar to what our elders do here at Living Water. And he had been gone for probably three hours, and most of those meetings only lasted about an hour, maybe at most an hour and a half, and she got concerned enough that she thought, I think I'm going to drive over to the church and just take a peek and see if anything's amiss. It was only a mile and a half from our house at that particular time, Olivet Baptist Church on West Thomas Road, Phoenix, Arizona. And she drove over there, and the good news was she did see a couple of cars in the parking lot, including my father's. But then she went in through the one door she knew would be unlocked into some classrooms and through the hallway to that educational wing over toward the foyer of the sanctuary. And she could hear a little bit of something going on in there, some low voices, but she couldn't tell what it was necessarily. So she kind of tiptoed in and peeked around the corner. And when she got there, she saw that there was a circle of men. They were all on their knees, but they weren't being held there against their will. They were praying. And they had been for a long, long time because they recognized that the church that had kind of come up against some challenges that were bigger than all of them, they had reached an impasse. They didn't know how to move forward. And so they thought, we just need to cast everything aside and really seek the Lord on this one. And so they had this extended prayer time that turned into a glorious time together. People got real. They started really confessing what was going on and some of the things that they recognized they were doing to help contribute to some of the division that was going on in the church. It was a powerful moment. Believe it or not, I still remember that experience being told to me because I was 10 years old at the time. 55 years later, it still makes an impact on me. And I'm really happy, really happy to know that God is still at work in that church. Now, here's a strange analogy, but I think you'll see how it plays into this passage in just a second. I also had a job, uh, not when I was 10 years old, I was about 16, as a burger flipper at a Burger Chef restaurant, a little burger chain back in the Southwest. And one of the after-closing tasks that we had was that one of us had to empty with a big spigot all the grease from a deep fat fryer 
into this big tub. It was like a galvanized horse trough, a round thing, but smaller than the horse trough. And it had a, a motor that you could plug in and hit a switch, and it would pump this old grease through a filter system. So all those little particles of french fries and fish would get caught. And they called it the rejuvenator because it extended the life of that, that productive life of that grease. Can you see where I'm going with this analogy? Sometimes we need a rejuvenating prayer time because we've got stuff that's clogging our faith and keeping it from being really effective. And that's what that prayer service was for those gentlemen back at then Olivet Baptist Church. It was a cleansing prayer session. It filtered those men's faith and it revealed things that in their lives needed to be thrown away because some of that contamination was keeping them from moving together in unity in faith toward what God had in store for them next. Well, this little church later changed its name. It's a big deal for a church, church to change its name, but they did, and they changed it from Olivet Baptist to Thomas Road Baptist Church. It was strategic because they're located on Thomas Road. And I was delighted to find out when I little, did a little search this week that they're still in operation. They're going strong. They actually have two full-time pastors. One preaches in English. The other preaches in Spanish because there's a very large Hispanic population around that area. It's also located next to an elementary school. I used to go out there and play on the monkey bars when Dad was praying some of those nights when I was a kid. And so there's this great population, and it's still very, very active. So you might say that in today's passage, we're going to see Jesus' disciples experiencing what they could consider contaminated or polluted or fouled faith. And it happened immediately after they had been in God's presence and he had revealed that glimpse of glory at the Mount of Transfiguration and they come right down into this situation. So let's look at that passage, verses 14 through 29. I'm going to read through that whole thing because it's just such a great narrative. And then I'm going to look at three contaminants that the passage shows us today. Verse 14. When they returned to the other disciples, they, meaning Peter, James, and John, they saw a large crowd surrounding them, meaning the other nine. And some teachers of the religious law were arguing with them. And when the crowd saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with what we sang about, with awe. And they ran to greet him. What is all this arguing about? Jesus asked. Can't you just hear the parent in all of us in some of the things that we may have said at one point or another? And here he is with his disciples. What is all this arguing about? One of the men in the crowd spoke up and said, Well, teacher, I brought my son so you could heal him. He's possessed by an evil spirit that won't let him talk. And whenever the spirit seizes him, it throws him violently to the ground. And then he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast out the evil spirit, but they could not do it. And Jesus said to them, you faithless people, how long must I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought the boy. But when the evil spirit saw Jesus, it threw the child into a violent convulsion, and he fell to the ground, writhing and foaming at the mouth. How long has this, has this been happening? Jesus asked the boy's father. 
He replied, since he was a little boy. And the spirit often throws him into the fire or into water, trying to kill him. Have mercy on us and help us if you can. <laughs> what do you mean, if I can? Jesus asked. Anything is possible if a person believes. And the father instantly cried out, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that crowd of onlookers was growing, he rebuked the evil spirit. Listen, you spirit that makes this boy unable to hear and speak. He said, I command you to come out of this child and never enter him again. And then the spirit screamed and threw the boy into another violent convulsion and left him. And the boy appeared to be dead. A murmur ran through the crowd as people said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and helped him to his feet and he stood up. And afterward, when Jesus was alone in the house with his disciples, they asked him, why couldn't we cast out that evil spirit? Jesus replied, this kind can be cast out only by prayer. And some other translations say prayer and fasting. Lord, we're asking you to shine your light into our hearts from this passage. Please speak to us and reveal more about yourself, about your character, about what we need to learn as your disciples so that we too can strengthen our faith and purify that faith. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, I've mentioned this before, and I still find it true, that in America, we tend to not dwell a whole lot on events like this because I think in America, for one thing, we don't see most things as being demonic. Some do, but a majority of the Americans probably think, oh, there's a psychological issue there. There's some brain chemistry that needs to be altered, and there are good medications to help people who have certain kinds of difficulties. And yet, it's also very important for us to realize that there are still spiritual battles being fought today and that there are things that we don't deal with on a daily basis, but they still exist. And that happens because Satan is still alive and he has limited power. He does have power, but it is limited, and it's good for us to know that. But he has limited power as the prince of the air, as it's mentioned in one of the Gospels. And so... Until that time when Jesus decides, I'm done, I'm ushering in the last chapter. Now, some people might quibble about the timing of those events, but we know it's going to happen. Jesus is going to come and finish what he started. He's going to cast Satan into the lake of fire or into the abyss, and he'll be done with him once and for all. And finally, Jesus will rule and reign. He's going to redo this wonderful earth, so it's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And finally, we'll get to be under his leadership, where Satan has no more power. But right now, we're in that betwixt and between. And so Satan still has limited power. And because his M.O. is that he wants to steal, kill, and destroy, when we see evidence of innocent people being harmed, we don't blame that on God. A lot of people try to. They'll say, why would God do that to this person? Or why would he allow that? God doesn't do that. That's not God's nature. Satan is behind anything when an innocent is harmed or killed. That's Satan's work. God is there to help pick up the pieces, and God is there to continue to reveal that there is redemption that can last forever so that we can have permanent healing. But Satan is the author of this kind of evil in the world. 
So I'm grateful that that's just limited, but we need to know how to deal with that, especially if we're starting to have some of these difficulties in our own life that we want to find out how to deal with it. We can see immediately there's something kind of diabolical going on with the other nine disciples when the three get down from the top of the mountain. By diabolical, I mean that they were, in a sense, ambushed spiritually by these teachers of the law. Jesus didn't have a lot of good things to say about these folks, as we see in other passages. They were arguing. They were arguing with the nine. And based on previous encounters with these diabolically motivated teachers, these religious leaders, we can imagine that this was just an outright spiritual attack. They were known for attacking Jesus' authority, for one thing, which I'm sure they were doing, and especially so they could gloat and say, see, you can't cast them out. You have no authority. You said that God gave you authority to do this, and yet look at you, failures. He's got all this extra talk that Satan loves to put into people's heads, especially believers, to try to get us to have some doubt and contamination. It contaminates our faith. Now, I can imagine that they were taunting the disciples in a way that was not helpful. They were not building them up and saying, oh, that's okay, try again. Just You can do it. You can do it. Pray a little bit more. No, they were grateful for this opportunity. We can get a pretty good idea of what Jesus thinks of these teachers of the law by what he called them in John 8, 44. He said to their faces, you, teachers of the law, are the children of your father, the devil. Yikes. <laughs> so, you know how people of different ideologies, perhaps different political persuasions, will pounce on a tragic situation and rush there? Not so they can solve the problem. They're there for the optics. They want a good photo op. And they want to try to turn that situation into their political agenda to say, oh, this is what I want passed as a way of this law that I'm proposing, and this is why we need it. And so they co-opt it. They try to turn a tragedy into their poster child for their cause. We see it all the time. Where did that come from? Well, it just started with this last regime in America. No. It's been happening ever since this stuff. That's exactly what these teachers of the law were doing. They show up at this awful moment when this poor child is being thrown to the ground by a demon. And in this case, it just calls it that. It doesn't say he had epilepsy. We just have to take it at face value, I think, and recognize that this boy was being stricken by a demon. And they were trying to turn that boy into their poster child trying to discredit Jesus, discredit his authority, and to discredit his disciples because they didn't want anything to do with this new movement that Jesus was starting. Well, two observations that we see here from the passage. First of all, demonic powers are not some sort of impersonal force. They're very personal. It was personal to that dad whose son was specifically stricken with this particular awful malady. It was a way that many of these people who were in that crowd had not seen. It was unique to the disciples. We know that because they'd been sent out on their training mission before, and they had come back with great reports to say, and we cast out demons in your name, Jesus, and they responded to that authority. So they were excited about that. So we know that they'd had previous experience, but this time, something different. They hadn't seen it yet. Well, we know that Satan simply hates God in everything that God loves, especially innocent people like that boy. And so we know that Satan is the source of evil. evil. And it's the big question that all of us have at, at times, some more than others. The question is, 
Why didn't God intervene? If God is such a loving God, if you say he is, or if he even exists, wouldn't, if he, wouldn't he have intervened in that, kept that from happening? We hear it all the time. And in this case, the question is, well, why didn't the disciples stop it? Why didn't they intervene? They had the authority, and that's exactly what they were being taunted about by these religious leaders. But let's look at Jesus' reaction, verse 19. You faithless people, how long must I be with you? How, how long must I put up with you? In essence, how much longer do I need to keep teaching you until you finally get it? Bring the boy to me. Now, one thing I love about this is that we see the compassion of Jesus that says even when he's upset, he doesn't give up and stomp out and walk away on him and say, well, you brought this on yourself. Now fix it yourself. Bye. I'm out of here. <laughs> Human beings are tempted to do that when we come up to impasses. And we give up and we walk away. Jesus doesn't do that. He'll never walk away on us when we get to a point when we think we have an impasse either. So he stayed in it and he showed them that he still did have that kind of power and authority. What a contrast from what had just happened. The blazing glory, the lightning clothing, all that stuff on the mount, and they come back to this. It must have been jarring. It must have been disheartening to those disciples because they're literally way up here one minute, emotionally in every, every other possible way, and then they're down in the pits, completely feeling defeated. Isn't that the way life is sometimes? Well, we could expect Jesus to call the teachers of the law unbelieving or faithless, but the focus here seems to be the way it's worded, aimed at the disciples. How long must I put up with you? Haven't I been teaching you these things before? I think he's really aiming that to the disciples especially. Now the others were there. I'm sure they heard that. But it looks like he's really giving it to the disciples here. And that's important for us. Because what do we call ourselves if we're believers? We're disciples too. Which means that he's actually instructing us secondhand, sort of, by what he's teaching the disciples right here. Because we need to learn this stuff as well. We're the ones who still struggle with contaminated faith. I know I do. People who consider themselves believers in Christ ask, why won't God answer my prayers? My prayers for that healing of my loved one. And I've been praying diligently. I have had an open Bible. I'm reading his word every day and I'm praying, but he still hasn't healed that loved one. Or why doesn't grab a, God grab a hold of that prodigal child of mine or my grandchild who's a prodigal and reel them back in and get them back into the fold. I've been praying diligently for that every day for months or for years. Why doesn't he answer that prayer? Or why doesn't God help so-and-so overcome that addiction that's ruining their life? And before we shake our fingers at the nine disciples, I really appreciate that there's one person in our Tuesday night small group that always gives the disciples the benefit of the doubt. I love that. And we should too, quite frankly. It's good for us to give these disciples a little bit of the benefit of the doubt because three chapters ago, they had been given the authority to heal others and they had seen it. They had witnessed it. So they probably approached this situation thinking, no problem. Been there, done that, bought the t-shirt. We're ready to go. We can handle this situation. But they couldn't. Because of their recent history with casting out demons, we might think that Jesus is being a little harsh, in fact, by saying, Oh, you faithless people, how long must I put up with you? We think, okay, if I'm a, a disciple, I'm going, well, Lord, I mean, after all, we've only been at this for a while, and we, we did cast out a few, but we just can't on this one. 
and yet you're really taking us to task. They've tried, they failed. The teachers of the law are pouncing on that. They're criticizing them, arguing with them. And then Jesus shows up. Isn't it good to know that sometimes when we're in the midst of something that we've been so perplexed that we feel like we're beating our head against a wall, even in prayer, Jesus still shows up. He constantly does. He still sees us frustrated and reaching out for him. And yes, maybe we feel like we deserve to have him say, you're pretty faithless. But he still shows up. And that's because he cares about us and he cares about where we are and what we're facing. And I have to be honest, this incident kind of messes with our concept of faith. It really does. It kind of, kind of just stirs up some things and creates a lot of questions in my mind. What are, what are the definitions that Jesus is operating from? Because it's a little different than what I thought he had defined based on what the disciples had just done. But we need to be re-reminded about what true faith looks like, and that's what Jesus is doing for us too. It's easy for us to try to stamp out cookie-cutter formulas and simplified, oversimplified definitions of faith so that we have a formulaic faith. And I think that may have been part of what's going on with the disciples. They were relying on the formula. We've done it this way. We've always done it that way before. It's worked. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. So let's keep doing that. And they did it, and it didn't work. Formulaic faith, however, is not a relational faith. Formulaic faith takes the focus away from the relationship, and basically you're putting faith in your formula, not in the person that you have a relationship with. That's true for all relationships, not just our relationship with God, where he will say, I want you to do a different thing this time. I'm not going to do it the same way I did it before. Just look at Moses for that one. Moses, we have no water for the children. You're in the middle of the wilderness. It's hot. There's a desert. No water anywhere. Take your staff. Strike that rock in front of the people. I will make it happen. He does it. What's he try to do the second time around? Formulaic faith. Oh, I'm going to strike the rock, and I'm so angry at them that I'm going to show them a thing or two. I'm going to show you how much authority I've got. He strikes it not once but twice. But what had God told him? Speak to the rock. God did it differently that time. First time was strike it. Second time was speak to it. God doesn't do everything the same way every time. And neither do the people in our lives when we have a relationship. God knows everything about every situation and about every other variable that's going on in a relationship, which is why he keeps after us to get plugged into him so that we are relating to him every day of our lives because he may wake up one day and say, all right, you've been doing this for the last six months. I'm about to flip the script on you. Now I want you to do it this way. And we do it in obedience, and he shows us what we couldn't see until we obeyed him. And the, Oh, it's like he knew that before it happened. So we're pretty sure that these disciples actually did believe. They knew about Jesus' power. They'd been with him in ministry. They knew that he was God's Messiah. Peter had affirmed that. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And by now they had come to believe that Jesus was more powerful than Satan because they had seen him cast out demons before numerous times. And they believed in Jesus' compassion because they had been with him when they had thought, uh, let's just send him home and get something to eat. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to feed the people because he saw them as being like sheep without a shepherd. So they knew his compassion. They knew all of that. So to give them credit, I look at this scenario and I wonder, why would Jesus accuse them of being faithless? That's curious. It's a curious question. 
Well, here's some unbelief defined, and I think this is where the contaminated faith comes into play. Unbelief doesn't necessarily have to be defined as I out and out, out and out disbelieve God. There are a lot of well-meaning believers who believe God, but they have contaminated faith. All it takes is a little water to make gunpowder completely ineffective. <laughs> All it takes is a little bit of this contamination to clog the system, and that faith is just not as pure, and we start to maybe default to some of the other things like our formula rather than looking to God as the author and finisher of our faith and the one who reveals what we're supposed to do next. Self-confidence is one of these, one of the three things we see in the passage that are contaminants that we see actively here. Mark 8, 34. We've done this before, they're thinking. And they had. Jesus had just taught the disciples what it means to be a follower. And that's why I think this is connected to what's happened just earlier, just before they got up onto the mount. He says, remember what you're supposed to do if you're going to be my follower? Deny yourself. Pick up your cross which means that you've got to completely crucify your self-will and open yourself up to my leadership or don't follow me at all. So evidently, I think there's something about this, I don't know, self-confidence that they tried to build into themselves. They've been thinking, we're pretty good at this. We cast out a lot of demons that first time around. Jesus is away. That's all right. We got this. They didn't got that. They didn't get it at all. And they needed to relearn that denying self meant I need to continually lay myself down on that cross and say, okay, God, I know I'm trying to do this in my own strength and it's not working. And so I need to pull myself back. I need to decrease so you can increase. Show me what to do next. It's easy to think that they were out to heal that kid just to prove those religious leaders wrong. But you know what they would be doing if they had done that? they would be turning the boy into their poster child. They would be no different than the Pharisees or the teachers of the law. And Jesus didn't want that happening either. And Jesus knows all these variables. He knows every factor that's there. So he needed them to know that it's Jesus' authority. They could have maybe prayed that and said, in the name of Jesus, and it's by his authority that we're able to do that, not because we have any strength in ourselves, come out. I don't think they did that. Here's the second contaminant. Dwelling on defeat, verses 20 through 27 of Mark 9. I'm really touched by the boy's dad in this incident. One of the occupational hazards of ministry is that you get to see people sometimes in difficult situations, sometimes in hospitals, been in a psych ward a couple of times with people who are just really struggling. And I can really imagine that this boy's dad must have been just beside himself. You can hear it. You can hear the tone as he's trying to describe what's going on to Jesus. And it's happened to him since he was a boy. Which means that he's had a lot of time to dwell on these defeats. To dwell on the pain rather than looking to a future that might have a different story. A new chapter that can be written. He was dwelling on that defeat. He's desperate. And as disciples, I know how easy it is for stuff. Now, the brain chemistry people will say that sometimes if we get stuck in a past hurt, it's because we have something that goes around in a hippocampus, and it just won't get unstuck from the hippocampus and move on. All right, maybe that's what's happening there, but I think the spiritual cause for that is that we haven't let go of something in our past, which means there's got to be some forgiveness happening, and it's forgiveness that can sort of unleash what's going on chemically, and things change from that. 
we start to have a new pathway made even in our brains because we know God's capable of doing that. We can literally become a new creation in Christ as we see a better chapter happening with hope and salvation and redemption. God does that when he redeems his followers. But to dwell on the faith means that we're continuing to rehearse. We get right up to that place. If you ever had the old LP, vinyl LP albums, you get a scratch in one of them and you go, it just gets stuck in the groove. And we do that. We just have this loop playing in our head, but the loop gets stuck at the point of pain, at the point of that defeat. And we won't get beyond that. And I think that's one of those things that can clog our faith because we need to start thinking for ourselves, I know God has the power to carry me beyond this crack in the vinyl. I know that he can heal whatever's going on so that I can make forward steps. And one day I'll look back at that and say, that's in my past. And I don't have to live in the past. The past is past. I don't want to live and dwell on defeat. I had a, an epiphany as I was looking at the dust bunnies in the chair closet this morning. God reveals himself in mysterious ways. People would take all the dust in the broom from this gym and push it into that closet and then they just leave it on the floor in there. And I feel like we kind of do that with our past hurts sometimes. We have this little closet in our heart and it's the dust bunny closet of defeat. And we push all that dust in there, but what do we do? We just keep walking around in it. What are you doing? I'm walking around in my dust bunny closet. But man, it stinks in here. This is awful. I feel terrible. I'm taken right back to that same defeat. And I'm still walking around my dust bunny closet. Well, why don't you get out of there and sweep it up and throw it away? Now, I kind of enjoy walking around in my dust bunny closet. Yes, we need to sweep it into something and throw it away. That's what God does when he forgives. And he can give us the ability to forgive so we can walk past the closet Throw that stuff away, and he throws it into the deepest ocean, and it's forgotten. It's like what happened to those men in Olivet Baptist Church. They were sweeping the dust bunny closet that night in prayer. And God forgave a lot of stuff, and they moved forward in unity, and that church really went somewhere. That kind of prayer rejuvenates our hearts, and it purifies our faith. That's when we get to the point when we say, God, I am at the end of myself. I don't know what else to do. I got nothing. And he goes, good. That's what I needed to hear from you. Now I can reveal what you're supposed to do next. And then the third contaminant is not praying. Duh. <laughs> How often have I thought, well, God won't reveal anything to me. And it's because I've been so busy just trying to crank things out in my own strength. If I work faster, if I work harder, if I keep adding things more to my schedule, maybe I can work this thing out. And you think, well, have you stopped and have you actually prayed yet? Oh, well, no, actually. This particular demon was different than everything else that these disciples had come up against before. And so they needed to stop. Did they pray first? I don't know. I suspect they didn't. I suspect that they kind of went back to their mantra, whatever that formula was that they used back when they were on their training mission, and they thought, in the name of Jesus, I command you to come out of that boy. Didn't work. Hmm, let's try it again, this time with feeling. <laughs> and it just didn't work because they were trying to go back to that mantra, going back to that repeated thing. Yeah, I'm just going to keep repeating that same prayer over again. No, this is a different one. Jesus even mentioned that. Some can only come out through prayer and sometimes through fasting. And I got a little word for you today, too, that I think came to me this week, and God convicted me. 
You know, you start throwing this stuff out and thinking, man, that's going to preach. I'm going to just, mm, I'm going to really get them with this one. And then God goes, Brrr. you know what you keep doing in the middle of preparation for that? Hilaire. Sometimes the thing that holds us back is not food and fasting is good And it can remind us that we're desperate for God and that we're hungry for him hungry for him than we are for food itself But I got another contaminant in my life And I think there's a lot of people in the United States today and probably all over the world that we're literally addicted to endorphins We're addicted to the kind of feel-good uh, Things that happen in our brain when we hit on certain things get dopamine hits and so we've got this stuff that's pouring into our brains all the time. Doesn't give me much time to think, God, what do you want in this situation? You know, oh man, look at that cat. It's so cute. <laughs> Dopamine hit. Oh, it feels so good. Oh, look at that rescue dog. He, oh. You know, and all these dopamine hits, while we probably need to put this thing away somewhere else and walk away from it for a while, and meditate on the word. Can I get an amen? amen? And I say that because I'm the first person to have recognized that this week. And I'm just giving you leftovers. But I think that's true. So sometimes we need to pray and get rid of the in, intrusive stuff in our lives that keep us from really hearing from God. All right. And then one more quick word of caution and I'm going to wrap up. Don't mistake verse 23 Anything is possible, if a person believes, as a magic wand for the Christ follower. That's not what that means. Well, I would really like a new Cadillac, Lord. In the name of Jesus. No, it doesn't work like that. I think that one of the things that Jesus is saying by, if I can, what do you mean if I can? Well, of course he can. It's like the parent. Uh, I had a similar conversation to this just this last week with somebody, but... If your kid is with you, you got a four or five-year-old kid, and you're in the store, and that kid says, Mommy or Daddy, buy me five candy bars. I like that kind. It's not a matter of if you can. If he says, if you can buy me that, would you buy you that? Well, of course you can. You've got all the money in the world, according to a four or five-year-old kid. You've got enough money. The question is, am I going to do that? Is it the right thing for me to do to do that? And we have a hard time with that as disciples to say, God, I know you can do it. Everything is possible with you. Everything. And so I want to pray that, yes, my will would love to see it answered this way. But if not, I know you know what's best for me. And for this situation, answer it another way. And I trust you. I've told you this story before years ago, but it's, it touched me deeply. Paul Calmes, my pastor at Packard Road Baptist Church when I was on staff, and I went to the hospital, U of M. A dad who was from Escanaba was down here. His son, who had Down syndrome, was an adult. He and his wife had some grown children that were up and out of the home, so they'd been caring for this child for years. He was their focus. He was their purpose for living for a long time. And the son needed to have some neck surgery because something was going on creating a lot of pain. Should have been not that difficult a surgery for most people. But this kid got so fearful of everything that was going on. He woke up from surgery with his halo, with screws in his skull, and he just went berserk. He couldn't handle what was going on. And it started this precipitous downward slope of domino effects, and one by one, his organs started to shut down. So Paul and I were there trying to figure out how do we speak into this situation? 
can we say, in the name of Jesus, I command you to be healed. I claim it. You know, I didn't know what to do. Paul didn't know what to do. We were praying, agonizing with this dad. And the dad said, let's go in another small room and pray together. And we did. All three of us prayed for a while. And he looked up with just this pleading look in his eyes. And he said, did God reveal anything to you just now? In other words, did God show you that he's supposed to receive a healing? Because God always gives us what he promises. And Paul and I had to sadly shake our heads and say, I'm so sorry, but he did not. And there was a sense of peace that just came over this dad. He was a believer. And he sighed and he said, I accept that as God's will. My son's a believer. And his son passed away later that night. And that dad gave the most powerful witness to the doctor who broke the news to him. Paul and I were in the room with him when that happened. He said, Doc, do you know Jesus Christ? He goes, I've heard a lot about him, but no, I don't know him the way you're talking about knowing him. I know about him. He said, well, Doc, I hope that one day you'll get to know him the way I do, because even though I'm terribly sad right now, I'm not ignoring my grief. I'm going to miss my son terribly. But I've got to tell you, there's a peace that passes all understanding going on in my heart right now because I know I'm going to see my son again because he knew Christ too and we're going to have a reunion because he is whole and healthy and happy and he doesn't have Down syndrome anymore and there's so many good things happening in my son's life right now. And that gives me complete hope and it takes the sting of death away. And that doctor was just kind of nodding like, wow. You know the Holy Spirit's going to use that witness to that doctor somehow. It's powerful. So we can't mistake Mark 9.23 for if you just use the formula, if you just use in authority, in the authority and in the name of Jesus Christ, I command whatever. It's not what that verse means. It means, yes, I will trust you, God. I would love for you to answer the way I would like for you to answer it, but I trust you no matter what, no matter what your answer is, because I know you love me and you know what's best for me and for this situation. I would like for us to pray and to pray that God would help uncontaminate our faith, especially when we reach those times when we feel like we've come up against something that's just beyond our own strength. Let's pray. God, I do thank you for faith. Thank you for all the ways that you build our faith. And now I pray that you will help us purify that faith. I want you to filter out all that junk, the toxins that can pollute my faith. Things like self-confidence or dwelling on past failures or defeats. And a lack of prayer. Help me in my unbelief, like this dad said, so that I can trust that all things are possible for you. And help me to trust that you know what's best in every situation. Help me to trust your answer is always the best answer. And help me to draw near to you so I can continue to deny myself, lay my life down on that cross, and trust you for the results as I follow you as a true disciple. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.